0: Welcome to the Tuesday Night IBS Podcast. I'm your host, Johanna Ruby. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnoses. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of motility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversation about their impact on a patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. Hi, everyone. Welcome to uh, another session of Tuesday Night IBS. We are so excited to have um, our very first expert guest joining us this month, and that is Dr. John Damianos from Yale School of Medicine. Uh, He has been a frequent host uh, of some of our tutorials on Twitter over the past year or so, and um, you've probably seen a lot of his um, other tweets educating us all in the area of DGBI. Today, we asked him to join us to talk a little bit more about a really common patient complaint, something that I'm sure if you're in practice, you see in your clinics with your patients. And um, from a a patient advocacy side, I, I get emails daily from patients with photographic evidence of their bodies with this chronic bloating and distension. It it can be really um, psychologically damaging and and physically um, cause cause some some issues with GI disturbances as well. So Dr. Damianos is here to explain these conditions, the differences between the two, and what we can do about them. So hi, Dr. Damianos. It's so good to see you in person and not just through Twitter. Um, Thanks for joining us today. And thanks for these great slides that you're going to walk us through. So I will uh, leave it to you to get started.
1: Well, wonderful. Thank you, first of all, for having me. I'm thrilled to be talking about this topic. As you mentioned, it's something that is exceedingly common. It's something that I see a lot. People across medicine uh, see and people experience either intermittently or chronically. And uh, I I think it's a topic that deserves more awareness. And so I'm thrilled to be kicking off our, our sort of new format, both with the the podcast and the videos. And I'm just absolutely honored and thrilled to, to be doing this. So thank you very much. And so let's just dive right into things. So as I mentioned, this is a very common issue. And Bloating and distension are often uh, conflated, but they are actually two separate processes. So bloating and distension, taking them together, very common in the general population, up to 31% of people. Women tend to report it more than men. And in IBS, this is probably the, the most common pathology in which we see bloating and distension. So up to 90% of patients with IBS, particularly in those with constipation predominant IBS are going to complain of bloating and or distension. A recent paper just came out looking across disorders of gut-brain interaction and try to identify certain factors that were associated with the severity of of bloating and distension. And what they identified from their survey was the severity of constipation, abdominal pain, somatization, the presence of functional dyspepsia, as opposed to irritable bowel syndrome, which was interesting and perhaps contrary to what a lot of us had, had thought. Uh, the presence of functional constipation and younger age. And taking these complaints, uh, in addition to them being exceedingly common, they can wreak havoc on patients' lives, as you did mention before. So 75% of people who have bloating and distension say that their symptoms are either moderate or severe. And 50% of people say that their symptoms are so severe that they actually impact their daily life in a negative way. So so they cause a reduction in their ability to carry out their days as as normally. So these are exceedingly distressing symptoms to people and very common symptoms. And so it's important that both as patients advocating for themselves and also as clinicians that that we understand the proper workup management and treatment of of these conditions. So again, I I said that bloating and distention are sometimes conflated, but they are two separate processes where bloating is a subjective sensation. It's a sensation of gassiness, a feeling of uh, trapped gas, abdominal pressure, And, uh, this is patients will often say that they sense an abdominal fullness pressure somewhere, either diffusely or in one part of the abdomen distension on the other hand is objective and it's a physical manifestation of an increase in abdominal girth. And so patients will say, I look like a balloon or I'm pregnant. And just like you mentioned before, I get emails and I get pictures in my clinic of people saying, look. This is me before a meal. This is me after a meal. You know, I look like I'm nine months pregnant. What is going on with me? And again, these are separate processes over half of patients typically report uh, bloating without distension. So these two, uh, uh, you don't always get distension with bloating. So the differential diagnosis of bloating and distension is Fairly extensive. And having a good handle of of this kind of from the bird's eye view is helpful in using your history, physical, and other labs, imaging, et cetera, to be able to properly diagnose what is causing any given patient's bloating and distension. And my general branch point is: is this gastrointestinal in origin or is it non-gastrointestinal? So, in things that are outside of the realm of, of GI, um, and of course, diet is involved in everything, but diet is is probably one of the more common things of, of just changing to a more flatulogenic diet. So eating lots of high fiber foods. Interestingly, the, the microbiome does tend to adjust. And so people who are switching, let's say, from a, a low fiber diet to a high fiber diet may complain of bloating for a couple of weeks, but the microbiome does tend to adjust and, and, and those effects tend to level out. People with irritable bowel syndrome and visceral hypersensitivity may be bothered by FODMAP foods. Um, and then commonly people who just chew a lot of uh, sugar-free gum and use artificial sweeteners, these two are osmotic solutes that can contribute to diarrhea. There are many medication, GI and otherwise, that contribute to the sensation of bloating, NSAIDs being a common one, opioids and opioid-induced constipation, An important uh, association to remember is hypothyroidism, uh, which can certainly play into uh, dysmotility as well, Um, but making sure that a patient doesn't have thyroid disease Gynecologic malignancies like ovarian cancer certainly do present with bloating, endometriosis, premenstrual syndrome. So a lot of of pathologies in the uh, gynecologic world, connective tissue disorders like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which can come from uh, visceroptosis as well as dysmotility. And speaking of dysmotility, POTS, uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome um, is associated with bloating, again, via uh, uh, some dysmotility and some dysautonomia um, and scoliosis from actually having a, a compressive effect on the colon and impacting the ability to evacuate uh, stool flatus. So within the GI world, there are many, many, many pathologies, and I won't go through everything, but important ones to recognize are small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, carbohydrate malabsorption, celiac disease, uh, gastroparesis, and other uh, foregut dysmotility, chronic intestinal pseudo obstruction, uh, and then chronic enteric infections like giardiasis, which can mimic IBS um, as well as H. pylori. um, which are very common in, in the population. And then specifically the disorders of gut brain interaction, I've separated them here because, uh, they are a very common feature. As one of the studies I mentioned earlier, uh, they tend to, to feature bloating. So IBS and functional dyspepsia being very prevalent chronic idiopathic constipation, and really any of the disorders of gut-brain interaction that involve constipation. Uh, So opioid-induced constipation, chronic idiopathic constipation, IBS, uh, constipation predominant type, Um, and then aerophagia, which is the excessive swallowing of air, can certainly lead to uh, bloating and distension, and then uh, functional bloating and distension as well. And I wanted to focus a little bit on, on the, the diagnosis of functional bloating and distension, because I think that as a general population, we are increasing the awareness of certain DGBIs like irritable bowel syndrome and functional dyspepsia, chronic idiopathic constipation, but there are still a lot that really don't have much awareness. And I think that functional bloating and distension is something that is more common than we realize, probably under-recognized and under-diagnosed. So here are the Rome 4 criteria. It's recurrent bloating and or distension occurring at least one day a week on average. The bloating and the distension should be the predominant symptom. So it, it it's not related to... Uh, meals. It's not related to changes in bowel habits, as we would see in IBS, for instance, symptoms have to occur for at least six months um, and active within the preceding three months. And this again is an important diagnosis to have in mind, because there are a lot of patients who present with isolated bloating and isolated distension. Um, and they're often given diagnoses say of, of functional dyspepsia and IBS and given treatments for that. And, and, uh, they may receive suboptimal treatment because they're not actually being treated for the correct disorder, and we'll talk a little bit more about the pathophysiology. So, beginning with normal physiology of, of uh, bloating and distension, I have here on the right um, a, a an image that details the intake and expulsion of gases throughout the gastrointestinal system. Now. What's physiologic is that throughout the day, our abdominal girth increases and then returns to a baseline overnight. So there actually is a bit in everyone, even those without any sort of, of gastrointestinal pathology of the abdominal girth increasing throughout the day and returning to baseline at night. Now, when people complain of symptoms of, of bloating and distension, it's often attributed to gas, people say I'm very gassy. I'm eating something, you know. I, I have I have too much gas, and that's actually usually not the case. So, in one elegant study that actually used CT scans to quantify the amount of gas in patients, they studied. Patients with disorders of gut-brain interaction and found that in only about 25%, when patients reported feeling distention after being given a, a, a flatulogenic diet, only in about 25% was it actually correlated with more gas. For everyone else, it was thought to be more of, of the sensation, visceral hypersensitivity and or abnormal movements of the abdominal and thoracic cavities that were contributing to the sensation of of bloating and so this is an important uh thing to realize because sometimes people will eliminate a lot of healthy fiber rich foods that are beneficial for their microbiome and for the the gut brain axis because they think that it's really due to the gas and so it's important to to understand this underlying pathophysiology now this slide here is from Dr. Walter Chan at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I really like it. It it breaks down the mechanisms of bloating and distension into three main categories. And so the first one is increased perception of wall tension. So this is again, the sensation, a heightened sensation about physiologic things that are going on in the body. And so this can happen again, in uh, disorders of gut-brain interaction where visceral hypersensitivity is featured. This can happen in conditions where there is ongoing intestinal inflammation like inflammatory bowel disease or or post-infectious IBS where there's again, uh, the inflammation predisposes to visceral hypersensitivity. Or even esophageal disorders where there's esophageal hypervigilance, again, from some pathology causing modulation of the the gut brain axis to focus more on what's going on physiologically or pathophysiologically. The middle one is increased intestinal wall tension. So this actually is when you do have more gas in the intestines. And so this could be in in aerophagia when there is the ingestion of more gas. This can be in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth when when there are more microbes fermenting more, producing more gas, um, or again, you know, eating a flatulogenic diet where you're just producing uh, more gas. And then the last category here is reshaping of the abdominal wall. And so this happens in abdominal, abdominal phrenic dyssynergia, where there's abnormal movements of the diaphragm and the abdominal wall, uh, to create the experience of distension. And so, as you can see on the bottom of Dr. Chan's slide, the increased perception of wall tension tends to feature more bloating, whereas abdominal more abdominal wall reshaping tends to be more distension and then increased uh intestinal wall tension from gases tends to lie somewhere in the middle. Now the pathophysiology of, of the common causes of bloating and distension. So I mentioned some of these before, but in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, there's an in ex-, excess of coliform bacteria in the small bowel causing excess carbohydrate fermentation, gas production, distension of the small bowel. And there may also be due to the dysbiosis associated with SIBO some inflammation that can predispose to visceral hypersensitivity. In carbohydrate malabsorption uh, and intolerance, there's an increased osmotic load, which predisposes to uh, excess colonic fermentation, causing more gas. Dysbiosis in and of itself is thought to predispose to the sensation of bloating. There was one study that found that people who who complain of bloating have decreased ruminococci and eubacteriaceae, uh, which is interesting. That's only one study, but uh, th- there was a, another uh, study that looked at small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and suggested that it was less the presence of of the number of bacteria. So what we call SIBO quantitatively and actually small intestinal dysbiosis that underlies symptoms of disorders of gut brain interaction. So that's a very interesting study. Similarly, dysmotility uh, examples, including gastroparesis, scleroderma, chronic intestinal pseudo obstruction can cause the sensations of bloating and distension from a few different mechanisms. The stasis can predispose to SIBO and excess fermentation, and then uh, the, the dysmotility can also inhibit normal transit of gas and stool. Pelvic floor dysfunction, including dyssynergic defecation. Again, there's impaired ability to effectively evacuate flatus and stool, in visceral hypersensitivity, as we've discussed, there's a heightened perception of, of normal physiologic stimuli common in, in disorders of gut brain interaction. Aerophagia, the excessive swallowing of air. And this x ray here, this abdominal x ray, actually, you can see distended loops of small bowel, which is due to the excessive swallowing of air in a patient with aerophagia. And then lastly, abdominal phrenic dyssynergia, which is a learned paradoxical response of the abdomen and thoracic cavities in response to, uh, normal, uh, food and gas production, which is seen in, in certain disorders of gut-brain interaction. Now it is probably abdominophrenic dyssynergia that is the pathophysiology, which underlies a lot of patients who have functional bloating and distension. So that diagnosis that I talked about before now I like this image here because it shows on top the physiologic response to gaseous distension of the GI tract. So when we eat food and the bacteria, uh, start to, to break down our food and ferment and, and produce gas, our diaphragm tends to relax and the abdominal muscles contract. And so what this does is when the, uh, diaphragm relaxed, it ascends the abdominal muscles uh, contract and you get accommodation of the increased gas. Now in abdominophrenic dyssynergia, patients in response to the increase in intraluminal gas will have essentially the reversal or the opposite of that, that normal physiology where the diaphragm contracts, it comes down and the anterior abdominal wall muscles relax coming out And so this causes protrusion of the abdomen, resulting in the manifestation of abdominal distension. And so you can see that in the below image. Now, this physiology has been demonstrated in people with IBS, functional dyspepsia, as well as functional bloating, as I mentioned before. And this is something that Uh, Can be treated with diaphragmatic breathing, biofeedback, or physical therapy. Because as I've mentioned, it's a learned response. And we can, uh, you know, just as we can learn to control our posture and other parts of of our musculature, we can learn to retrain that reflex. We can learn to retrain how our uh, diaphragm and our abdominal wall muscles act. Um, And I'll go into that a little bit more as well. Now, this is an example. This is a, an image I've I've just found from searching on Google. And of course, there are hundreds of these. And, and as I mentioned before, I, I get emails of this and pictures in my clinic of this, as I know many others do. Um, and this is a good example of somebody who says, Hey, this is me normally, and this is me after you know eating two crackers or, or something like that. And 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 in these patients, again, who say, I'm not having diarrhea, I'm not having constipation, not having much abdominal pain, uh, functional bloating and, and distension may be the diagnosis due to underlying abdominal phrenic dyssynergia. Now, this is an elegant study that demonstrated that this physiology, number one, existed, and number two was not due to increased gas. So this Study recruited people who felt that uh that lettuce gave them bloating and distension. And so they gave the participants lettuce, their abdomens became distended, and then they stuck them in a CAT scan in a CT machine and was able and were able to quantify the movement of the diaphragm and abdominal wall as well as the gas. And so, as you can see, what happened was the diaphragm pushed down and the abdomen relaxed and pushed out. And there is not a change in gas. So there really was not a change in in gas volume. It was due to the mechanics of the diaphragm and the abdominal wall. And so this was a very elegant study. And again, sort of reinforces the importance of explaining the pathophysiology to patients so that they're not avoiding Uh, lettuce and leafy greens, which are very healthy foods, which are beneficial for the microbiome. Another similar study aims to do this. And on the right here, looked at patients with, with small intestinal dysmotility and found that what happens in dysmotility where there's slowing of the gut, excess fermentation, there is an increase in gas. But as you can see, the reflex is still normal. The diaphragm goes up, the abdominal walls go out. And so the bloating and distension are not due to the reflex, but due to increased gas. But then this first image here of people with this paradoxical response have no change in gas, but due to the abnormal the abnormal reflex, have bloating and distension. So these were two very elegant studies that, that helped identify uh, this, this physiology. Now, when working up bloating and distension, Uh, as in all good medicine, a a good history is, is at the, is at the crux. So the onset and the timing relation to food and bowel movements, surgical history, since surgeries can certainly predispose to, uh, dysmotility, uh, and and to SIBO medications and supplements. It's always important to ask patients about, uh, over-the-counter supplements, vitamins, herbs that they're taking, Physical examination is always important, including an abdominal exam, including a rectal exam to evaluate for evacuation disorders and pelvic floor disorders in in patients with constipation. Breath tests are increasingly being used for the diagnosis of SIBO, intestinal methanogen overgrowth, and carbohydrate uh, malabsorption. And I won't (laughs) go into the controversies around breath testing, but I've I've put here the the parameters that are accepted in North America for uh, the, the procedure of the lactose and fructose tests and the diagnostic parameters for the diagnosis of SIBO. Certainly uh, ruling out celiac disease with serologies, uh, alarm symptoms should prompt uh, upper endoscopy. Abdominal imaging may be indicated in certain patients. uh, For instance, if there is suspicion of inflammatory bowel disease or suspected small bowel dysmotility, gastric emptying studies or other motility studies of, of the foregut, the small bowel, um, for, for people with suspected small bowel and gastric dysmotility, and then anorectal functional function testing, such as anorectal manometry and MRI defecography to evaluate for evacuation and pelvic floor disorders. Now, this figure here, uh, goes through some of this to, uh, provide a framework for the workup of chronic bloating and distention, And it begins as, 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 uh, most GI algorithms with the present with the presence of warning signs, which should prompt, uh, endoscopic evaluation. Uh, if they're not, the next branch point is related to bowel habits or not, because again, if they are related to bowel habits, especially constipation, then treating the constipation is the mainstay of treatment, Um, and if there's diarrhea, then uh, irritable bowel syndrome may be the diagnosis. If related to diet, uh, things like IBS, functional dyspepsia, celiac disease, uh, SIBO can all be considered. And then again, kind of the final branch point being, if if there's really no association with anything else and there's isolated bloating and distention, then we may be dealing with abdominophrenic dyssynergia um, and, and treatment should, uh, be offered appropriately. Now looking into different types of treatments for, for bloating and distension, I I touched on this briefly at the beginning, uh, but diet is a key component. So reducing artificial sweeteners. And again, this is probably the most common cause that I see in the general population is people who are, uh, putting artificial sweeteners in their coffee Or baking with them, or who are chewing a lot of sugar free gum, these are osmotic solutes that can uh, cause excess fermentation and cause uh, diarrhea.
0: I think that's fascinating, uh, Dr. Damianos. I I honestly have never heard the connection of artificial sweeteners to these conditions. And I I wonder how many patients, as you mentioned, are using these on a regular basis in their coffee every morning, you know, in their cooking, baking, thinking Mm -hmm, that it's mm -hmm. healthier alternative Mm -hmm. to sugar. And yet it it could be driving these symptoms for them. That's really interesting.
1: That's absolutely right. And even a a common example here might be peppermint because peppermint is is potentially the most widely used supplement by people with uh, GI illnesses. And there are certainly many peppermint gums, peppermint, uh, candies that are sugar-free and use these things. And so could actually be counterproductive to helping their, their symptoms, which is very interesting. And then certainly the, 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 uh, low FODMAP diet in people with irritable bowel syndrome and functional dyspepsia. And I have a a nice diagram, uh, from a, a paper on the low FODMAP diet that Uh, explains how in people with an underlying dysbiosis, that the presence of FODMAPs can cause uh, gas, bioactive metabolites, that in people, again, with dysbiosis and visceral hypersensitivity can cause, uh, in addition to diarrhea and fast transit, can cause bloating and distension. And then there was a recent paper that looked at soluble fiber um, and found that increasing soluble fiber in the diet can decrease not only the sensations of bloating in people with irritable bowel syndrome, but can also decrease the actual gas production itself. Um, and so including, uh, either psyllium supplementation or foods that are rich in in soluble fibers into the diet may be able to actually decrease gas production. Probiotics are, are something that, uh, everyone seems to be asking about these days and is one of my principal interests. Um, I serve on the scientific advisory council to the Alliance for education on probiotics and potentially the most important message that I give to people about probiotics is that just like medications or supplements, each probiotic is completely different. Uh, Each one has different actions. And so it's, it's extremely important to match the probiotic strain the evidence-based probiotic strain that's been studied for a particular condition to that particular condition. And so there are multiple strains with benefit for IBS and functional dyspepsia. And looking into those studies, a lot of those did include bloating as secondary outcomes, and there does seem to be favorable data. And so in people with functional dyspepsia, functional dyspepsia, IBS and certain other pathologies, it is reasonable to trial some of these evidence-based strains. And there are good ways to look at where the uh, look at what these strains are, AE probio being one of those, and uh, we actually did, in conjunction with Tuesday Night IBS, write a crowdsourced clinical review that that goes into some of these as well. And so that that's easily uh, accessible. Similarly, uh, in the vein of modulation of the gut microbiome, antibiotics are the mainstay of treatment for SIBO. Rifaximin is approved for IBS based on the three target trials. And then SIBO from dysmotility may actually respond better to rotating antibiotics plus or minus a prokinetic. And so this is because in in people with underlying uh, chronic dysmotility, they have a higher risk of recurrence of the bacterial overgrowth. And so they may respond better to rotating antibiotics plus a prokinetic to help with the a dysmotility. And these are some of the regimens that are commonly used again, hearkening back to constipation. So constipation itself is one of the main drivers of, of bloating. And so treatment of the constipation itself is very effective in treating the bloating. Now, In people with IBS, it may actually be better to avoid osmotic laxatives because like with these artificial sweeteners, these tend to be sugars, polyethylene, glycol, lactulose. These are sugars that can cause fermentation. And lactulose is something that we use in the hospital all the time to prevent and treat hepatic encephalopathy in our patients with cirrhosis. And there's a tremendous amount of, of bloating that is associated with that because it's just a, it's a prebiotic sugar that is fermented. And so some other options are kiwi. Of course, I think at this point we're all aware of the study that that compared kiwi to prune juice and found that it was better tolerated and had less bloating. Stimulant laxatives like the senicides and bisicodal can be used. And then there are the uh, prescription laxatives, which can be very effective in treating both constipation and the bloating associated with it. My go-to tends to be Linaclotide, And the data seems to suggest that this is probably the most effective uh, in terms of bloating. There's actually a number to treat of seven, which is very favorable. Uh, there are also the chloride channel agonists like lubiprostone. There's tanapinor and tegaserod. And just here on the right to illustrate this, this is from uh, the American Journal of Gastroenterology, a study on linaclitide, looking at the changes in bloating and, and finding how linaclitide caused a significant reduction in reported bloating compared to the placebo. So identifying constipation, the cause of constipation, and treating it can be very effective in, in getting rid of that that bloating. Prokinetics, as I mentioned before, for gastroparesis, small bowel dysmotility, perhaps in certain patients with uh, functional dyspepsia and IBSC, this is a slide I took from uh, Dr. Baha Mosheri Um, who recently gave an excellent virtual GI grand rounds on small bowel dysmotility and IBS mimics. And and these are the uh, prokinetics and their considerations that that she has uh, offered. Then there's sort of treatment of the uh, gut-brain axis itself. And so there are things like antispasmodics, which may be helpful in certain patients whose symptoms arise from gaseous distension of the GI tract. There's tremendous interest in uh, neuromodulators in disorders of gut-brain interaction in general, uh, specifically for bloating, amitriptyline, S-citalopram, citalopram, and buspirone have all had particularly good evidence in treating bloating. And then supplements like peppermint oil have also been helpful, um, in, in treating bloating and there are multiple potential mechanisms of action for that. And I've included the, the picture of, of part of the Rome foundations, very helpful resource on, uh, using neuromodulators. This is something that, that I keep on my phone at, at all times, since this is, uh, something that I, a category of therapy that I tend to prescribe a lot. Moving along from non-pharmacologic therapy, but again, treating the, the, the brain gut axis, physical therapy and, and biofeedback can be helpful in disorders of gut brain interaction, particularly abdominal phrenic dyssynergia and pelvic floor disorders like dyssynergic defecation. And this again, comes back to the idea that we can train our bodies to, uh, learn how to change reflexes. And so in, in biofeedback, there's actually real time evidence that is given to the patient to help them understand how to manipulate their body to execute a a certain function. And I'll show a diagram of this in a second, newer therapies, uh, which are still nascent in their development, include neurostimulation, like auricular stimulation and sacral nerve stimulation. These are, these are newer therapies. Neurostimulation has been along much longer for a certain dysmotility, such as gastroparesis, And then various behavioral or psychotherapies, including cognitive behavioral therapy, gut directed hypnotherapy and acceptance and commitment therapy have been well studied in in several disorders of gut brain interaction, most commonly IBS. Uh, There really haven't been studies specifically uh, to investigate bloating and distension, uh, but there certainly is is promise in, in the IBS literature. Now uh, this here is a slide from a study that looked at biofeedback in patients with abdominophrenic dyssynergia um and what it did was was uh, as you can see here uh patients were provided with EMG feedback in real time about several parts of their body including the diaphragm and the uh, the anterior abdominal wall muscles and uh, The black bars show the biofeedback. The white bars show the placebo. And as you can see here, the biofeedback significantly was able to change the EMG activity. The patients were able to learn how to retrain their bodies to move back to the physiologic response to increased gaseous distension of the GI tract. And from the same study, uh, Fe- biofeedback was found to change the perception of bloating and distension, as well as the actual girth uh, of the distension. So this is a very promising therapy for people with functional bloating and distension and, um, and abdominophrenic dyssynergia. Similarly, um, pelvic physical therapy for, uh, both phrenic dyssynergia and chronic idiopathic constipation Patient and other defecatory disorders. This here is from a paper that looked at uh, pelvic physical therapy and how it was able to effectively change uh, people's responses of the colon and, and rectum and anus to effective uh, expulsion of flatus and stool. So this here is, is to finish up another slide from dr walter chan um, and, and i like it. it sort of begins with again that sort of uh is this gi non-gi are there red flag features that warrant endoscopy and then it really all comes down to the physical examination and, and the history so is, is there a lot of belching associated with this could this be aerophagia or gastric or supergastric belching is there constipation? Because if there is, then we can diagnose the cause of constipation and we can treat it. If it's correlated with meals, there are a multitude of different pathologies that that uh, can underlie that and we can begin that workup. Um, if it's predominantly bloating, then there may be an altered gut-brain axis and, and visceral hypersensitivity. They may respond best to neuromodulation and or behavioral therapy. And then again, if it's this pure distension, perhaps it's abdominophrenic dyssynergia and biofeedback may be the best therapy. Now, my personal approach very closely mirrors this. It begins with a detailed history and physical examination with particular attention to medications that could cause bloating, as well as supplements, um, and and then the diet. And then my next branch point is, is this gastrointestinal in etiology or extra is this gastrointestinal or or non-gastrointestinal? Um, I make sure to rule out pathologies like thyroid disorders. Um, and I make sure that, um, my female patients are up to date on their gynecologic care and age appropriate cancer screening. If it's associated with diarrhea, I think about celiac disease and IBD. And if it's negative, I'll think about IBS and SIBO and treat appropriately. If there's constipation, we'll want to diagnose the cause. Um, If patients are refractory to over-the-counter laxatives and to uh, prescription-based laxatives like linaclotide, then they should undergo anorectal manometry and or defecography to identify the type of defecatory disorder they have. If there's a relation to meals, thinking SIBO, carbohydrate intolerance, functional dyspepsia, treating appropriately. If there's a, a predominance of nausea, vomiting, and distension, small bowel dysmotility, and, and gastroparesis come to mind. And then finally, if there's this exclusive bloating and, and distention, I'm thinking again about that diagnosis of functional bloating and distension, and um, hoping that they would benefit from behavioral therapies, such as diaphragmatic breathing, biofeedback, and and GI psychology. Now, uh, this is a slide that's based on another slide from Dr. William Che, which is a graded multidisciplinary treatment. And this is how I think about treatment of really any disorder of gut-brain interaction. And this slide originally came from a talk I gave on IBS, uh, but it really didn't change much for bloating and distension. It begins with... uh, In patients with mild symptoms, providing reassurance, education, literature on the gut-brain axis and explaining the physiology, giving advice about diet and lifestyle changes, and then giving as-needed supplementation or medications. In patients with moderate symptoms, having regular follow-up, making sure that there's control of stress, anxiety, depression, or any comorbid uh, psychiatric disorders and prescribing symptom-based medications. And then in the most severe of cases, using close follow-up multidisciplinary care involving the primary care doctor, the gastroenterologist, um, a registered dietitian, pelvic uh, physical therapy, gastrointestinal psychologists um, and and offering psychological um, based treatments including behavioral therapy and of course this multidisciplinary c- collaboration happens everywhere on the scale offering patients from the beginning if they want to work closely with a dietitian or a pelvic pt, um, to, to tailor the treatment uniquely to the patient's needs. Um and so with that, I, I, I want to thank you. I'm happy to answer any other questions. And um, I look forward to continuing the discussion on t- Twitter um and on the other forums on, on Facebook. And I'm always happy to answer questions about uh about these topics, which are very important, very common, and can wreak a lot of havoc on people's lives because getting the right diagnosis and getting the right treatment can be, uh, can be achievable and it can be a game changer for people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, completely second that. Um, this was a a really, really comprehensive and well done presentation. So first of all, thank you for that. And I think that the explanations on the ideology and the treatments and everything was just so spot on. And I think not something that we typically get, um, at least as patients from providers very often. So, um, really, really, really appreciate your time in putting that together. I'm wondering, you mentioned in the, in your, um, slide on probiotics, the Hmm. importance of matching the right strain to the right symptom, um, because each one is is really been studied to be effective in certain certain areas. And so how can patients find credible information on which strain would match their specific symptom? Because you know, if you do a Google search or an Amazon Mm -hmm. search Mm -hmm. for probiotics, you're going to get everything in the world and really no clear direction on what could work. And, you know, because probiotics, I, I I will play devil's advocate here for a second. I have some clinicians that I work with who say probiotics are fooey, and mm-hmm. patients can actually do more harm than good and end up giving themselves, you know, some sort of infection or disrupt the microbiome so much that you know you were really starting from scratch and trying to rebuild a healthy gut microbiome. And so, you know, what guidance can patients find in in using it effectively and responsibly?
1: Yes, that's a very important question. And I'm glad that we're spending a little time on this because I I think saying that, you know, probiotics are fooey is is a completely unnuanced way of of looking at things. And, and, you know, for those of you who do follow me on Twitter, I do tweet a lot about uh, sort of a lot of the limitations of of probiotics research about how, you know, a lot of these opinions are based on meta-analyses that are comparing, completely different strains with each other, which would be, you know, if you're taking a medication, for instance, that has been shown to help in IBS and you're comparing it against another medication that has not been shown to be helpful. And then the, right. the results are a wash and yeah. Yeah. you know, some probiotics help with diarrhea, others help with constipation. And so certainly if, if, you know, you're, you don't know which one you're taking and you have constipation and you're taking the one that helps with Uh, with diarrhea, for instance, then you could be worsening your symptoms. So you're right. It's it's very important to target the particular strain that's been studied to the symptom. And there are a few resources out there. The Alliance for Education of Probiotics, AE ProBio has a guide. It's been around since 2008 and it's updated every year with, uh, and there are very strict criteria to be included in the guide, the, the research has to meet a minimum standard of rigor to say that that we include it in our guide. And the website, there's also an app, uh, it's very user friendly, and you can look by indication. So you can say, okay, oh, I have true. constipation or I have diarrhea. Um, and so you can match it exactly to um, the symptom that you're having. And like with any medication or supplement, it's important to have the conversation with mm-hmm. your physician. Because another, another thing that I do see a lot, unfortunately, is people who start on a probiotic and are not on the right one, but you know, they, they were told to take it and, you know, they end up taking it forever. And it's really like anything else. A probiotic, people tend to think about probiotics in a completely different light, but I think of them just as, as any other medications. It's a limited trial, you know, I think up to 12 weeks is reasonable, um, to see if it, it helps. And if it doesn't help, then certainly stop it and consider, uh, either another strain or mix of strains or moving on to another, trying to target another aspect of the pathophysiology of their disorder. Because again, mm-hmm. disorders of gut brain interaction are very heterogeneous in their, right. In in their etiologies and their path pathogenesis. And so if modulation of the gut microbiome doesn't seem to be helping, then perhaps moving on to a a different part of the pathophysiology may be more beneficial for that individual patient.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, another question I was thinking of as you were um going through your presentation was the role of GI psychology, and you mentioned Mm -hmm. that several times. Um, I'm curious, you know, we talked about in the beginning about how impactful bloating and distension can be on patients when it's quite severe, um, particularly similar to that slide you showed with the young lady with. A quite distended abdomen. Um, and I know a lot of patients email me and they're incredibly um, affected psychologically, emotionally. They don't want to leave their home. They don't wear a bathing suit. They have no clothes that fit them. There, you know, I have one woman that um, has resorted to wearing maternity clothes because nothing mm-hmm. fits her. And it's just incredibly hard for her to manage psychologically. Um, Can you, can you talk about the benefits of GI psychology, not just in possibly treating the symptoms themselves, but also in managing that quality of life and that psychological impact? Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. So these, these symptoms, as you mentioned, can be so disruptive and so disturbing that they can impact people's daily lives in Anywhere from minor ways to say, oh, you know, I don't, I don't really eat out at restaurants because I don't know what, you know, my body's going to do to people essentially confining themselves at home because they're so self-conscious about how their, how their bodies looked. And, and this is, uh, related to, but separate from the underlying diagnosis. This tends to take on a life of its own. It's, it's, it's anxiety about a diagnosis, and this is certainly not unique to disorders of gut-brain interaction. It's not unique to gastroenterology as a field. Certainly people who have cancer, for instance, and, and are undergoing chemotherapy and, and lose their hair, for instance, you know, may develop tremendous anxiety and, and self-consciousness and fear about you know, going outside with, with losing their hair. And so it's really no different. It's about saying you have this disorder How can we manage the the adverse effects that this is having on on your psyche and your life? That's how I see uh, that it can help. Again, in addition to actually being able to treat the underlying condition in in some parts, but it's really addressing the effect of the symptoms on the patient's life. Because that, that hopefully can be mitigated by therapy, but sometimes, as I mentioned before, It does take on a life of its own and itself needs specific treatment.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's important to, to stress that to patients that, you know, all chronic illnesses have a psychological impact. And so, you know, when a doctor makes a recommendation of, you know, maybe a a therapist would be beneficial I think, you know, of course, our initial response as patients is he thinks I'm crazy. He thinks it's all psychological. He thinks I have an underlying psychological problem. And that's not necessarily the case. It's, it's the impact of the illness, as you mentioned, no matter what the illness might be. Um, so I think that's, that's a really important point to stress. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, you mentioned the importance of multidisciplinary care, and I I fully support that. And, you know, Dr. Che is, is kind of the The big strong voice in GI for pushing for more centers to offer that to patients, but it's still it's still not available very many places. So for those patients who don't have that option of a a fully multidisciplinary uh, care center, how can they kind of piecemeal or or what would your recommendation be for them to find some of these other treatments like physical therapy, pelvic floor physical therapy, or dietitian advice? or things of that nature?
1: That's a very good question. Very relevant right now. Hopefully it eventually won't become relevant because there are right. people, Dr. Che, yeah. who are advocating for uh academic centers and 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 private centers to work on this more. And I I know personally from, you know, I, I came from Dartmouth before, which was in the process of building up its multidisciplinary, uh, GI behavioral health center and Yale is actively doing the same right now. So I, I am experiencing the, these positive changes happen, but you're absolutely right that there are still uh, many patients who do not have access to these resources. And so there are a few different things that I would recommend. One is trying to, 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 integrate themselves as fully as possible into the international GI community. And so forums like Tuesday night, IBS, um, and, and the Rome foundation, Facebook page, for instance, are hubs of knowledge and education that can help patients, uh, do advocacy for themselves, whether that's even, even, uh, learning diaphragmatic breathing on their own from, from YouTube videos that, that our experts have, have put out there uh, to being able to connect with people who are close by to a particular patient. So I think integration into these communities is important. There are also um, there's a growing movement to incorporate some of these therapies into apps. And so there are multiple apps out there that, are integrating either dietary therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, gut-directed hypnosis that can be helpful for people. And then also one of the silver linings of the pandemic is the expansion of telemedicine and telehealth services. And so there may be opportunities to engage with, let's say a, a, a registered dietitian or a gastrointestinal psychologist remotely which is something that was much harder to come by pre-pandemic. So there, there are ways to uh, help these patients who are in more remote areas as the resources proliferate, which I am very optimistic about.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's good advice. I I actually have a patient who's using Nerva, the Nerva app um, right now, who doesn't have access to some of these um, providers, and, and it's working quite well for her. That's wonderful. Um, yeah. So I think you're right. I think there's some some nice, uh, innovative ways to, to find these services for patients who don't have access at their medical centers. Mm-hmm. Any last words that you'd like to leave a patient with um, regarding bloating or distention?
1: I think what I tell any patient who has any complaint that's, that's sort of chronic that uh, is in the process of being worked up is I reassure them that there is a name for their diagnosis and that I will partner with them to find them the name for that diagnosis. And that in and of itself can be therapeutic for a lot of people. And once we do name that diagnosis, we can figure out what treatment is going to work for you. And particularly in disorders of gut-brain interaction, I, I reinforce to people that it's not like a diagnosis of, say, Type 2 diabetes, where there's a finite number of medications, and we try those and and it tends to work. We may have to get a little more creative and figure out what works exactly for you, because there are many different contributors to disorders of gut-brain interaction. And so I I really emphasize to to patients that it can be a long journey, but there there can be an endpoint. Patients can get a diagnosis. They can get effective treatment. And they can live normal lives. I do want to emphasize that.
0: Great. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Um, If you have any questions for Dr. Damianos, you can always find him on Twitter. There's his Twitter handle on the screen. Um, And uh, we'll post it as well on our podcast and on our Facebook page. I'm sure he'd be happy to answer questions from you via email or through the chat functions of those platforms. Until next time, have a great day, everyone. We'll see you again real soon. Bye-bye now. Tuesday Night IBS and be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag TuesdayNightIBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time with our monthly guest and encourage you to join in the conversation. In addition, check out our page on Facebook at TuesdayNightIBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversation about these important topics. See you next month.